Hello, and welcome to the Game On Podcast. My name is Adam Bellow. I am the CEO and co-founder of Breakout EDU, but I'm also a father, a serial ed tech entrepreneur, and an advocate for positive change in the classroom. Each episode of the Game On Podcast is going to feature a new voice from someone who's making an amazing impact and helping to pave the way for the future of education. We're going to get to explore their ideas and opinions, as well as learn from those successes and failures from these amazing educational gurus. All right, let's get started. All right, welcome to the Game On Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bello, and I am just incredibly excited to have an amazing guest today on the on the show who is an incredible inspiration. He's someone who is considered not only the father of the video game, but just someone who's a deeply creative and dedicated entrepreneur, someone who's taken a lot of risks in his career, and someone who's also just you know deeply passionate about um, just innovation and also about education and specifically ed tech. So we're really, really super lucky to have you on the show today. Welcome to uh, Nolan Bushnell. Nolan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. It's always fun to uh, to pontificate on all kinds of things in education and games and fun. Uh, hey, that's what we're all about here. So uh, before we get started, I mean, listen, I think everybody you know will have some working knowledge of who you are, but... How would you describe yourself? I mean, you've had such an incredible career and you really have pioneered so many things. Obviously, you know, Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, I swear to you, I feel like I'm talking to, as I mentioned to you before, it's like Thomas Edison, the person who's who's been responsible for many of the things I've enjoyed doing over my life. But how do you talk about yourself with, with that such a long list of accolades? You know, it's... It's sometimes tempting to live your life in the rearview mirror, but uh, I feel like the most exciting things are the things I'm working on now. So I'm kind of forward-looking, not backward-looking. And uh, I've often thought, what would I like on my tombstone? Probably, uh, he was crazy like a fox. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and I, I will tell you, I mean, despite obviously your, your most well-known accolades, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, the the stuff you've done in education, you know, whether it be Brain Rush, and we'll get into your kind of newer ventures as well. I just have always been a fan of, uh, you know, writing and, and the fact that you've kind of dipped your toes into so many things along the way, um, you know, having read, I don't know, I don't remember exactly when the book uh, Finding the Next Steve Jobs came out, but uh, I remember reading that and being like, wow, <laughs> just so much insight, so much great stuff there well you you ain't seen nothing yet um <laughs> love it i've got a book coming out uh, probably end of fourth quarter early first quarter called school of the future and it's basically a manifesto of how we fix the worldwide educational m- mistake the educational morass I am very hostile to the way we are treating our children. I think it's right on the edge of child abuse that our education system is so based on the dynamics of the 1850s. And it's like they don't know that the computer has been invented. And and in, and if you look at the efficiency of business. There was a big singularity when businesses started to computerize, but it wasn't, you know, they started out kind of having computers play a bit role 
And then the companies that really got into it became massively successful. And the whole idea of using data and understanding things on an individual basis instead of a group basis is really important. School right now is group-based. And when you say that you're in the third grade, that means that you are a collective of third graders. That's wrong. You should be a collection of one. You know, there's this old idea of reductio ad absurdum. Is a classroom of 30 effective? No. Is a classroom of 15 better? Yes. What about a classroom of eight? For some things, yeah. So if we can individualize learning, I feel like we can do a lot of things. Right now, let me tell you why groupness is bad. What you create is a pecking order in which kids early on think of themselves as being the smart kids or the dumb kids. If you self-select as being one of the dumb kids, that does a whole bunch of things to your mindset. And what you what kids should do is not compete with their classroom classmates. They should compete with themselves. And yep. some kids just don't do well under time pressure. Does it matter? Does it matter whether you're a fast learner or a slow learner? No. The idea is that you want to be a learner and you want to maintain what's, what's the most critical characteristic of a human being. It's creativity and optimism. And so if you crush creativity and you crush optimism, you've crushed the individual and you've created a permanent underclass. And I think that we can, with a proper school system, break that underclass construct because a lot of people are very, very, very capable. And they show up in later in life when they had horrible school experiences and yet go on to be a real estate investor and making millions of dollars, you know? And, and so I guess in my book, which is kind of a manifesto in some ways, and it's unabashedly so. And what I want to do is start the dialogue, asking the right questions. Um, I think I think college right now is so broken. Um, and alone there. <laughs> we have, I mean, student loans are a burden that no sane society would allow to happen. We know that the part of your brain that deals with long-term consequences doesn't really mature until you're 22, 23. One of the reasons that they didn't allow debt to be taken on by 19-year-olds is that they didn't feel like there was that was good. That, that was, you know, part of the world. Now we encourage 19-year-olds to take on massive debt. Many are just driven to delay adolescence as, you know, or prolong <laughs> adolescence as much as they can. And so they go to college, take an easy curriculum, take a, a silly thing, you know, like studies 
you know, ethnic studies, women's studies, all those things that have virtually zero ability to help you get a job. But then all of a sudden you're asked to repay massive debt that you've taken to get that. It's just wrong. And so um, I want to be an outspoken, hostile observer of the college systems, and I'd like to fix it through Exodexa, which is my current gamified education platform, in which we've shown efficacy that is astounding, 10 times faster. Think about compressing four years of high school into six months. I believe that's possible with better retention and better outcomes. So do we graduate people at 14? No. But think of all the extra things the kids can learn, entrepreneurship, you know, biology, you know, DNA, um, unity. I mean, there are kids right now that are programming video games at nine years yep. old. And, and these are, there is no reason why kids who graduate from high school shouldn't be able to enter the workplace at salaries of over $100,000. There's no reason. I mean, yeah. not everybody, but but many. And so that's my dream. That's my idea. I think they need to be, I think the world is moving towards every day a gig economy. And so what does it take to be an entrepreneur? You know, to build a company of one or two or five and get a group of your friends together. My my youngest son just put together a game company and they published their first game. It's called Escape Academy. Awesome. It's number three on Steam right now. He's going to make a million dollars at 28 years old. That's amazing. So, you know, That's it's, awesome. it is. I have, I have a lot of kids. I, I have eight kids, five boys, three girls, and uh, they're the delight of my life. That's, much more important to me than Atari or Chuck E. Cheese or any of that stuff. The whole idea of making the world a better place. And I like the old phrase that if you want to live in the future, you need to help invent it. Yep. And uh, that's kind of the watchword that I live by. I, I love that. I love that. And I will remind you, actually, when we had we had spoken, uh, I don't know, almost a year ago, and you had sent me your, your book slash manifesto and preach. I mean, I, I I am very, very much um, both like-minded in, in your, you know, lofty ambition and goals for it. And I think that a lot of our listeners probably are as well in terms of truly wanting change and knowing that it's possible. And I think yeah. only a crazy fox that, you know, change has to happen. And it needs to be, you know, as someone who's been a disruptor that you have in multiple, multiple ways and not just the ones you've, you've mentioned, you have to take that leap and that jump. And so I'm kind of really, really excited to, to pick your brain and, you know, our podcast will, will go through some questions over here, but this is a great framework and, and I'm excited to kind of dig in more and, and get your opinion on where we're going in education and kind of some of the advice that you have to, uh, to folks as well, because you've certainly had a, an incredible storied career. And I love the fact that as a father myself, that your focus is still obviously on the things that matter most. So yeah. It's uh, that's wonderful. And it's, I will tell you, I tell my kids all the time, you watch people play video games on YouTube, get on the computer, go build your own Minecraft mods, 
get on Unity. We've had uh, my friend Steve Isaacs was on recently. He's uh, one of the people that works at the Epic Games uh, in their education department. I'm like, listen, build games, build the things you want to play. So exactly, pre preach, but, preach. You know, I I can remember turning the corner with my kids when I taught them how to do a Doom wad. That's awesome. I don't know if you go back that <laughs> oh, far. I, I, I do go back that far. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the right way to teach kids how to program is you start them with things like Doom wads. Yep. Second, you show them how to go into the code and modify existing code. Because starting from yep. scratch is daunting. But when you start modifying code, you start to see how this number means that the, the cape is blue. And, and this number is the cape is red. Oh, that's cool. And so I think this, this piecewise, where you give every step a positive, easy outcome, is a good onboarding process. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I think that there's a, I don't know if you know the company, there's a company called Kano. They're uh, very, very simple plug and play build computers, like kind of uh, built on Raspberry Pi. But the the best part about it to me was the fact that they had a, a version of Minecraft that was uh, three, three pronged. One was like block based, kind of like a scratch where you drag and drop and, and manipulate it. And you see on the screen, split screen, what you're doing that affects your actual Minecraft game. And then it was the JavaScript underneath it. So it's exactly what you're talking about, where like you're able to literally go in and change the color of the bricks and whatever. And just was such a great way to start my own kids on, on learning how those things work. So love it, yeah. love it. Um, well, let, let's, I mean, I feel like we've had a great conversation so far. I'm going to kick it to our level one question, our icebreaker, which is, you know, play is super important. And, you know, at, at Breakout EDU, obviously play is important. And obviously it's been important to you, both in your current endeavors and your past ones as well. What was your favorite game to play as a kid? And it could be anything, obviously, since you didn't invent the video game yet. I'm assuming it was, it wasn't uh, it wasn't Pong. But what was your favorite game to play when you when you were a child? Early on, Clue, you know, oh, yeah. uh, Monopoly, all those uh, typical board games, and then I got fascinated with chess, and so chess sort of took over from. I think I was 10, and that became sort of a an important part of my early life. Um, I think, too, there were just the start of some of the more complex games that were coming out of Germany. And uh, and those, I'm, I'm trying to think of the names of them right now, and, and I'm drawing a blank. But, uh, yeah, it was, those, those, were, those were pivotal for me. And, of course, pinball. <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um what about now so obviously you know as as someone who's birthed many games i don't know if you're still playing chess or still playing other board games but do you play video games modern video games as well or no oh yeah i mean i uh i deep dive on things on my phone i play on airplanes and and various things um i uh i also have a coin-op video game simulator in my in my house um that's built by one of my other sons called polycade and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. and so that's fun and recently believe it or not i've been playing dig dug <laughs> really wow yeah. okay 
on, on, I the, don't know, it's just on the polycade. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> there's another game that I really like. It's called Quicks. I don't know if you remember that old chestnut. I don't know. Uh, refresh my memory. Q-U-I-X? Yeah. Q-I-X, I think. Quicks. Q-I-X. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. What kind and of then, side-scroller uh, tunnel? My Still my favorite. I mean, I play virtually every day is Go. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Go is, I mean, especially if you're, you're a fan of chess, Go. Um, my, my kids have gotten better than I am now, which is, uh, <laughs> we're at that point where it's, uh, we, we, we play even chess. It's like, oh gosh, you, t- you teach them a little and it's like, all right, <laughs> but, uh, no, that's See, awesome. I think as a parent being beaten by your kids in a game is just, it's like Christmas. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's kick it up to level two. And this is a history round. So, you know, everybody has an origin story. Obviously, I think that, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about yours, but more specifically than like what you've created and, and kind of those, those pivotal moments, what put you on the path to kind of get here and be doing the work that you're doing, whether it be the education focused work or just like even going back to starting Atari, like how did that how did you get from where you were then to, to doing the things that you've accomplished? The OG story on video games, I like to attribute to two distinct happy accidents. The first one was I had a advertising company. I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial. And I had an advertising company that created the campus water and it was basically the calendar of events surrounded by advertising that I would sell $3,000 worth of advertising and it cost me 500 to have them printed up and I'd give them out at the bookstore at the beginning of every quarter or semester. And there are four universities in Utah and I did it for all four of them. And, uh, life was good. I, uh, I was driving a 190 SL Mercedes sports car and living in a nice apartment and putting myself through college. And and like I say, life was good. But I knew I had a prodigious ability to spend money. And so I decided I was going to get a minimum wage job, which I always thought was for suckers, but at the amusement park. And I thought it's a, it's a night job. I can sell advertising during the day and and it turned out that once you did the first level of, of advertising, each successive quarter, 90% of them would re-up for the next quarter. So, so I found that I really didn't have to work that hard during the day. But the whole idea of working at the amusement park was it was a fun job, and it was to keep me out of trouble. Okay. You know, <laughs> I can resist everything but temptation. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so I was working there and it turned out that I was pretty good at it. And I've always sort of been able to sell. And so I was standing on the midway selling balls for a quarter to knock down milk bottles. And of course you meet a lot of cute girls in the summer and you know, it's life was good. Um, but then they made me manager of the department. And so that was kind of my MBA, if you would. Um, cause my boss was a really good tutor and uh, I had to manage 
you know, labor percentages and inventory percentages and train and hire and fire and, and the whole thing. But in addition to that, I had two arcades that reported to me at the, at the amusement park. Yep. And so I knew the economics of the coin-operated game business. I knew how much they cost, how much they had to earn to have a good payback. Happy accident one, happy accident two. In the 60s, if you were going to see a monitor connected to a computer, there were exactly four places in the world, MIT, Champaign-Urbana, Stanford, and the University of Utah. Dr. Evans, who was a, and I was pursuing an engineering degree, Dr. Evans at the University of Utah, who later um, started Evans and Sutherland, it's a big display computer graphics company. And um, I played Space War on the computers that he had set up. We'd sneak up into the computer center at night. We'd jam the locks and sneak in at two in the morning and play until five or six. Not great for grades, but it was great fun. <laughs> and so that happy accident gave me the idea I said to self, self, if I could take this screen and put a coin slot on it, it'd make a lot of money in my arcades. Then you divide 25 cents for three minutes into a million dollar computer and the math didn't work. Yep. But I thought maybe one of these days costs will come down and we can do it. Happy accident three. My first job was at Ampex where I really polished my skills in video processing. You know, it's not everybody knows how to do that. And just turned out my first job, that was my purview. And I got very, very acquainted with the Boolean blocks of MSI chips. And so along the way, one day across my desk, when you're an engineer, you get all these free publications that sell you parts and stuff. And coming across my desk came a mini computer for $3,000. I thought, huh, maybe the time is right. And, uh, and so I actually started a paper design using that. I hadn't bought it yet, but I started a paper design on how to do space war on that mini computer. And, wow. uh, and so the computer was massively slow. You know, chips in those days didn't want to run it more than a megahertz. And so I kept having to do these little circuits that would create things like score. And so I'd offload the, the, the challenge of the computer, but I, I kept, running out of time um, on the computer. The computer just couldn't keep up with all the calculations enough. And so I basically abandoned the project for, it was, I mean, I remember it today. I had a Thanksgiving holiday weekend and I basically abandoned it the first day of the weekend. Then Saturday, I had the epiphany. The epiphany, Let's not use the computer. I'll do it all in hardware. 
and I figured out how to do it. And all of a sudden, that changed the economics tremendously. Instead of a $3,000 computer, now I had a, a circuit board with a bunch of chips on it that had a cost of about 300 bucks. And that became computer space. That's unreal. What, what, uh, what year was that? 1970. I was a strapping 28-year-old. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, <laughs> as I said when we were chatting before, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to top that origin story, but uh, maybe. <laughs> and, and the rest, as they say, is history. But, um, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll bring it up to our level three question, which is about challenges. Um, you know, obviously you've, you've been in lots of different companies and you, you've done a lot of interesting things, not all without challenge. You know, what, what is something that you feel was a challenge or an obstacle that you overcame in the journey to get here? You know, I know it hasn't all been roses and, and home runs every time, but what, what was one challenge that you're, you're proud of kind of besting? Well, Atari never had any money. We were capitalized by $250 each. So there was $500 of paid in capital. That's what started. Mm -hmm. And, but the challenge was how do you run a company that has no money? And the answer came back you turn inventory very quickly and you sell it for cash before you have to pay the bills. And so you can operate the company in positive cash flow. And that is until all of a sudden your stuff quits selling. And now all of a sudden your cash flow stops and you still got a payroll. That was an obstacle. <laughs> yeah. And the number of times that I had a payroll due on Friday and there was not enough money in the bank on Wednesday to, to do that and scrambling around to get a distributor to pay you or what have you earlier and giving them a discount and what have you just to keep the wheels on. <laughs> Knowing the story, or at least published stories of Atari, is that a challenge you feel you overcame, or is that something that you just was was a challenge? It was an ongoing challenge, and and I've often thought I I sold Atari because we moved away from the video game coin op video game into the consumer, and the consumer business was really hard to operate in positive cash flow because you had to build a lot of product. Consumer business tended to be a fourth quarter business around Christmas. Mm -hmm. And uh, and a lot of times the retailers wouldn't pay until January or February. And so that, for we, we were okay because we had Sears for the early home pong. But when it came to the VCS, it was, it was a product that I knew was going to be massively successful. But we just didn't have the money to, to do it. And so mm -hmm. I started out trying to raise money and I was going to take the company public and then the market kind of blew up on me. And so I thought I'll find a corporate investor and uh, it was Warner and they decided they wanted to buy the whole company. And I was tired, you know, I'd been on this thing and, you know, with the stress of making payroll and things like that. And it just sounded like a a vacation to, to, to sell it and have somebody else worry about it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in hindsight, obviously it's one of the most pioneering impactful companies. And I think that obviously you, you being the, not being the front row seat, but literally being in the seat itself, you know, I, I don't think anyone has that sense of how exhausting that is 
I mean, yeah. even running a business that's nowhere near any scale of Atari or anything else like that, there is, I always say it's the roller coaster that starts off every day. There's like, this is the best day of my life and the worst day of my life all at the same time. <laughs> it's oh, just yeah. like, you're constantly fluxing emotions and positive and negative. And so, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, well, let's bring it up to a, to an, our next level question, which is about passion. And obviously, you know, having, having read an early draft of the manifesto and, and hearing you talk about it earlier, I could tell, obviously you're extremely passionate both about it, things in education, as well as, a, you know, a whole bunch of other ventures that you're involved with. But what are you most passionate about? Is it, is it changing college? Is it changing the way students learn in a younger grade level where you're talking about being a um, kind of uh, focusing on an individual learner and individualizing education versus having sort of group classroom dynamics? What I want to do is I want to create a gamified education, edu-gaming, if you call it, that actually starts in K through a couple of years of college. Um, Right now, Exodexa is just high school. Um, and as we get moving forward and, you know, get good cash flow, there's my word again, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, expand both up and down to pre-college, early college, and then we'll go down to junior high school, and then we'll do full elementary. There are a lot of rules and regulations you have to comply with when you get down to the younger kids. We, but we, we can do all that. <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll go laterally with language so that we'll, we'll start out with Spanish and then we'll go to German, Italian, what have you, Mandarin, um, to become more geographically omnipotent, if you would. Sure. Um, and with that, we will also be expanding the curriculum to include more entrepreneurship, not just STEM fields, but more what I'd call life skills. And the life skills, I think, properly done can be the most important for outcomes of kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly agree more. I think that that's exactly where, you know, what we do here at Breakout of You, our games have all of them have the social skills, those soft skills, the 4C skills at, at the heart of everything that we do, because ultimately the game is content-based and yes, they're learning about, uh, you know, curriculum or, or, you know, students are able to solve puzzles that are aligned to different problems. But the, the ultimate part of it is the fact that they're working together, that the collaboration and the creativity gets to bubble up. And it's a unique way of seeing things that you can only get, I think not only in, in games in general, but, but the games that we have, uh, created are, are really all kind of immersive and, and really deeply rooted in the fact that these students will have an experience, not just having a content repetition or, or trying to memorize or regurgitate content. The most important thing is keep enthusiasm, optimism, and creativity alive. The difference in t creative testing between kindergartners and sixth graders is appalling. I mean, yep. we're training out creativity to way too much. And creativity and, and passion are going to be the drivers of the gig economy. We want creative problem solvers. And, uh, and that's where the iconoclasts really shine, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's being able to, 
I think you, you hit it before when you're talking about kids designing their own video games and, you know, it's something where during the pandemic, I really thought that we would have this renaissance moment of the system blew up, you know, like, like schools have changed. And in reality, I think what we found early on was that, or at least what I was seeing was a lot of technology was coming to replicate the classroom experience so much, you know, so many ed tech startups came up where it's like, we're going to replicate what sitting in rows looks like and feels like, and then instead where it's like, this is a moment where you could kind of really take a deeper dive at, into uh, individualizing and, and making things different. So that's where I come in. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm here to, here to fight the battle with you. It's uh it's certainly a noble mission. And I know it's not one that, that uh, you share alone, which is, which is great. Well, um, what, one of the things I want to insert here is this is in no way diminishing the role of teachers. It does require them to become mentors as opposed to the sage on the stage. Yep. You know, the, the individual learning is just a first step. It's, you know, our software is really good at the Bloom's taxonomy up to probably level seven, maybe eight. But that, but it takes a certain amount of mentorship to move that into wisdom, yep. which is a hard to define and yet very important step. I mean, wisdom is 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 the only way. The only way you can get wisdom is through experience, time, and and mentorship, and you know. I can look back on my mentors as being very important. One of them was Mrs. Cook in the third grade, which really put me on this path. You know, so that, that's an important step. Well, you just gave me the, the perfect segue to our, our final question over here, which is about what is the best advice that you've gotten in your educational journey? So I don't know if there's something in particular that Mrs. Ms. Cook gave you, but... Uh, you know, if not her, I'm sure someone else along the way, but I'd love to know kind of the the best advice you've gotten along the along the way. I think it's part and parcel to the advice I gave Steve Jobs when he was working for me. And that is if you have an idea and you know, I'm I'm dismissive of ideas, you know, hey, that person stole my idea, what have you. No. If you have an idea, you don't own that idea until you really work it. You research it, you understand it, you you even business plan it. Um, because until you have gone to those extra steps, you don't really own your idea because it's just vaporware. Mm -hmm. But once you've gone through that and you're convinced that you're right, you can be in a room of 50 people that say you're wrong, stick to your guns because everybody else hasn't done the research you have. If you are confident in your research, everybody else is just noise. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I think that that's something that, that students often, you know, where there is a hierarchy, whether it's a student and a teacher or a parent and a child, like it's an important lesson to learn that your conviction is ultimately an important driver, you yeah. know, despite age bear. And this goes back to where we started the conversation with third grade being grouped by age versus by, you know, ability. Like you have the conviction, you followed it through, stick with it. I love it. Well, you know, 
there's this other thing that I play with a little bit that I have. It's called intellectual arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and what that, but there can be a danger with intellectual arrogance if it's not grounded in reality. I mean, there is nothing worse. I mean, one of the things they teach you in engineering is know what you know, but more important, know what you don't know. Because when you build a bridge on things that you think you know, but you don't know, those are the ones that fall down. And so your intellectual arrogance has to be tempered with humility. And those are really two things that, that fight each other. You know, you know, can you be humble and arrogant at the same time? You know, it's a fight. But I think you have to keep a little bit of both going on in your brain at the same time. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree. Um, yeah, I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I feel like we've kind of run the gamut. I, I really respect your your views on on not only education, but also just the fact that you've been pioneering different things for, for as long as you have. Um, and just really, I, I don't know, I, I just a lot of respect for kind of the, not only the work that you've done, that that's, that's the big, the big blockbuster numbers, so to speak, but just the other things you've done brain rush and other things that I've seen you do, you know, in my 20 years in education, um, I have a deep, deep respect for it. And as I said, I, I just really think that you're on to, uh, the, the right track and you know exadexa as a game company ourselves like very much looking to change what educational gaming and education itself can be is uh it's just great to connect and, and to pick your brain a little bit so thank you so much for for sharing your story it really has been incredible having you uh as a guest and i'm uh, i'm sure everyone's going to be looking for not only the new book but looking for exadexa is there other places online nolan that they should uh, either connect or follow you i've got i'm I'm involved with a company called Moxie right now, which is a middleware gaming platform where you can challenge other players and, and put a, um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, say, I, if, if I beat you, uh, you know, you put, you put a wager on it. And, uh, and so it's all blockchain based so that, uh, so that there's a smart contract created so that the winner gets the value in their wallet and the loser loses. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I've always liked tokenomics. I mean, I, I can, I like to say that I was into tokens with Chuck E. Cheese long before the blockchain. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but I think Moxie is going to be an important thing, and, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Are we going to cure cancer or fix the world? Probably not, but we're going to have a lot of fun. Because a lot of people don't realize that competition adds a dimension to games that are really interesting, that the quality of the graphics don't matter as much as the fundamental game algorithms. You know, I, I like to say when I play chess, I play with a black and white wooden set that, that was identical to what they were playing with in the 1600s. You know, yeah. when I play Go, I the black and white stones, 
nothing special, no special graphics there. Um, in fact, when I see some of these chess sets that you can't tell the pawns from the knights, you know, I say, you know, that's, that's the wrong thing. You're just adding noise into the game. Well, I yeah. feel this, that there are going to be some video games that will come out of the, these challenges that will be unique and fun and simple to play, but, but really uh, test your fundamental skills of deduction, problem solving, and sometimes reaction. One of the problems that we have is that we lose a millisecond of reaction time for every year you're over 26 or 23. <laughs> so if I'm playing a Twitch-like game where reaction time is important and I'm playing with one of my kids, I'm dead. They've packed <laughs> up and gone home before I know I've even been shot. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But I, th I mean, I honestly, I think that we're seeing more of a re of a resurgence as much as there's those and, and the, the graphics will get better. And, you know, now we'll be looking in the metaverse and all that. I feel like there's been such a resurgence of even more like point and click, like adventure yeah. game style. Like I've seen, I don't know, Ron Gilbert just released a new Monkey Island and there's there's all these new, I think even Ken Roberta Williams are building an Oculus version of Colossal Cave. Like I feel like there is a resurgence of so many of these older longer form genres. So thankfully our reaction time won't matter as much. <laughs> well, you know, I look back on my kids and, and they, a lot of them got their start on Pajama Sam and, and Spy Fox and the Humongous games, which were really revolutionary at the time. And that, uh, and I like that. I think that's a good onboarding process. My youngest son, Wyatt, was playing Pajama Sam with, you know, he'd come down to my office. I was doing a lot of work at home at the time. And I had a computer set up for him, you know, off, off the side. And he turned to me and he says, you know, Dad, I could do better at this game if I knew how to read. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And uh, and so I said, well, let's let's start to figure out how to read. And so he was not proficient, but he was reading at four or five. Oh, that's great. Listen, when there's necessity, I'll do better at the yeah. game. Why not? That's the whole point. Exactly. Motivation really yep. works. I love it. Well, Nolan, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, until the next time, game on.